Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. The art market is changing, but you can conquer it. The Clark Hewlings Fund is hosting the Art Business Summit on September 7th through 9th in Dallas-Fort Worth. With multiple workshops, discussions led by art business leaders, and one-on-one consultations, you'll learn how to take your business to the next level. With multiple events held in Dallas's historic Turner House and Alexander Mansion, this is the ideal time to get hands-on business training right in the heart of the Arts District in Dallas. Visit clarkhewlingsfund.org Dallas to buy your ticket. The sooner you register, the better the deal. That's clarkhealingsfund.org slash Dallas. I will personally see you there September 7th. It's less than 30 days, so it's coming right up. Register now. Our guest today is Todd Scalise. Todd is the CEO and director of Hire Glyphics, a firm that manages the art, design, and merchandising of large-scale public art projects. Based in Erie, Pennsylvania, he's working currently on the Erie Lightway, a community revitalization project. A professional artist and designer, his art has been commissioned in Pennsylvania and internationally. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you for having me. Well, Todd, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about how public art projects fit into the business of art. So your firm, Hieroglyphics, is described as a creative placemaking company. Tell us about creative placemaking and how working artists fit into this. Well, you know, creative placemaking is kind of a new term for kind of an old business mechanism. You know, public art has always been the most enduring way to get your message out. And it goes back centuries to even the Sistine Chapel ceiling or the Statue of David. Um, basically, creative placemaking creates a lot of buzz and attraction for communities. And uh, my business happens to convert marketing dollars into creative placemaking projects that generate earned media. We're going to ask you a little bit about earned media a little bit later. Um, let me say this. At the Clark Hewlings Fund, we promote the idea that working artists are vital to community development. That they contribute to the local economy. So how do you pitch art projects around community development to funders? Well, um, you know, you, a lot of times you have to start with the return on investment. Most communities have these needs. Um, they need beautification. They also need to have a way to promote themselves. Uh, they need to recruit. They need to raise capital. And they need to have residual streams of revenue. So those five points are usually talked to about when I go into initial interviews with community leaders. So let's do those one more time. So I got beautification, recruit, capital, residual streams of revenue. What's the one I missed? Earned media. Earned media. Okay. So tell me why, when we're thinking about, say, a community development council, if that is even the first constituent that you reach out to, why are each of those things important? Uh, and, And what do you mean by recruiting specifically? Well, those are issues that are important to the community. They're reflections of the public art that I would like to create, but those are the issues that my clients are thinking about. So when I enter into conversations with them, I enter into the conversations on their terms. I'm, I'm aware that they have these, these needs, and I'm trying to find a way through community art to fulfill those needs. Well, now, uh, beautification I get, obviously, and the earned media I get because, you know, one of the things your firm does is take care of all the publicity around uh, the project, sure. uh, which is great, as opposed to you've got kind of an edge over um, some uh, an independent artist, for instance, that may not have that ability and may need to partner with a PR person or may need to utilize uh, the existing PR arm of, say, a community development council. Correct. But when you talk about specifically the money side of it, um, capital, 
and residual streams of income. Can you get more specific? What do you mean? What, what's an example of generating capital and residual streams of income? Because after all, it's art. Um, you're not asking people to pay to come see the art project, right? You're not selling tickets. Correct. Correct. Um, well, merchandising is one residual stream of revenue that could be created through public art. Um, naturally, you have this attraction that has been built. People come see it. They're buzzing about it. And what better way for them to walk away from that experience than possibly have a piece of merchandise that they can wear it. This business format works really well for arts nonprofits like museums and other attractions like that. With the, regardless of the Erie Lightway, we have built in also events. There are organizations that may want to rent out a space near a public art space and, and an area that has been built to attract people. I see. So the, the presence of public art attracts people that are willing to spend additional dollars in the community, um, such as at, at various events. Uh, that's what you're saying, correct? Correct. And that's the mechanism of creative placemaking, yes. Ah, okay. So that falls into place. So w when you talk about recruiting, can you be specific? What do you mean when you say they're interested to recruit? Well, it's very interesting. I live in a community where recruitment and retention is an issue. There's a thing, you know, a lot of Rust Belt communities deal with brain drain and recruitment in the form of bringing new business to Erie. It's a statistical fact that public art creative placemaking attracts potential investors in business to communities. And I think the Black Foundation did a, an analysis a few years ago that they identified that people identify the most with the beautification of their built environment. And that's the, one of the number one ways uh, that they're either staying or moving to an environment that has that type of feature. You know, I think you're so right. So one of the, the biggest trends we see in real estate and in movement between cities and towns is a significant movement to walkable cities, both from more rural areas, but also from less walkable cities. And in that sort of bucket, it, while it has nothing to do with walkable, people sort of think of a whole bundle of amenities. They think of beautiful cities with art and amenities. And you can think of sort of public art as an aesthetic amenity of the community. So that makes me want to ask you, do you ever work with city planners for either developing or emerging communities or communities that are undergoing sort of an overhaul? Do they play a role in those discussions besides uh, various councils? Absolutely. Yeah. And again, back to uh, beautification, you know, the people have to walk somewhere and along the path, what better feature to have than public art or some sort of level of community expression. With the current project, the Erie Lightway, we are working directly with the city of Erie uh, and their planning commission to, to make sure that walkability, bikeability, safety are a major component of that project. Well, let's get into some specifics about your current project. So the Erie Lightway, for an example, how did the project get off the ground? Well, two years ago, uh, County Councilman and architect David Brennan had the idea, based on Birmingham, Alabama, which was our model, to begin to assess the revitalization of four downtown railroad overpasses. Like Birmingham, Alabama, these railroad overpasses divide our city in half. And on one side, there's a blighted environment. On the other side, there's entrepreneurial and business development. So like Birmingham, we decided that probably the best rationale to, to kind of bridge the gap would be to create 
a lighting system that would increase the, the feeling of safety, create an attraction, and also implement a, in the surrounding environment a 27,000 square foot public art project. Well, you know, it's a specific interest of the Clark Healings Fund to analyze and produce data on research about how artists specifically impact uh, the economy, the gross domestic product, and also just the general bottom line of communities. So I'm wondering if in this process, you're talking about, you know, seeing Birmingham, Alabama as a model. And of course, people like to see working models before they're the first uh, adopter of a new idea. Uh, so it makes total sense. You know, if you were going to build a, a new mass transit system, you would look around for other city models. So are you aware of any studies of the impact of public art and art in general on communities' bottom line, their financial bottom line? Have you seen any data on that? Well, the one piece of data that I always, it's, it's, it's national data um, about arts and cultural production. The one piece of data that I'm really familiar with is in 2012, arts and cultural production contributed to over $698 billion to the U.S. economy, which is about 4.3% of the U.S. gross domestic product. So that's more than construction, transportation, or warehousing in that particular year. So there's a lot of data out there on a national average, okay? And I think Richard Florida, he pointed this out a, a, a while ago, a long time ago, actually, that those types of statistics are kind of new to communities, especially the size of Erie, which is about uh, just under 100,000. I know with Birmingham, Alabama, they had the same situation that we currently have here in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I do know that property values did go up slightly, but also occupancy rates went up dramatically around these environments. So in terms of uh, building out the Erie Lightway, we're in phase one of collecting all that data while we begin to raise money for the first phase, which will be the first bridge. Let me ask you um, to dig even deeper on sort of the relationship with uh, the stakeholders. Were you the one that pitched the project initially, or was that somebody else? Well, David Brennan is the originator of the project. He's the architect. He came to Hieroglyphics and said, hey, we need a master plan, and we also need to have everything estimated, and that's what we worked on with him. Now, David Brennan and I, as a team, are pitching the project to stakeholders. All right. And were there multiple artists involved? I mean, I know the project team probably includes philanthropists, engineers, community leaders, but, but how many artists? There will be multiple artists involved. When we come to the public art aspect of it, uh, naturally, this is, this is more work than one, one person could possibly ever do in their lifetime, 27,000 square feet. So a master plan has been designed as a skeleton for the artwork as a plan, but we are going to hire all local artists to participate in that plan. So let's say that you're listening to this show and you're an individual artist that wants to break into uh, public art projects, do more public art projects. And obviously there are various ways to do that. You can, you know, go pitch solely on your own, but, you know, often successful selling and successful landing of a, of a project requires hunting in packs, so to speak. So sure. if... If you wanted to pursue those kinds of opportunities as an individual working artist, what do you do? Do you, do you wait for a call uh, for artists for something like this? Do you seek out a company like Hier Hieroglyphics or do you go directly to the city? What, what's step one and two? Um, I would say step one is call for artists. And there's a lot of listings on the Internet where you can really get a survey of what's going on in, in the country. The problem with call for artists is that 
most of the calls are dramatically under budgeted. And so if you don't have a lot of experience, you may be kind of entangled in, in uh, kind of a, a financial problem with your project. I would say philosophically, the one thing, if you want to start doing public work, you have to start seeing it as a service first, which is consulting. And then it becomes a product, which is the actual art and then merchandising or whatever else comes after that. So um, that in those two aspects, uh, service or product, those are the two environments that I think you have to have some experience being in in order to really understand how to master those. You know, it's very interesting because when you, you first began that sentence and, and you said uh, you have to see it as a service first, I thought I was about to hear, you know, a statement of it's a public service. You need to not care about the money. Work for free. And, and of course, that's not where you ended up. No. You're, you're comparing service in the sense of service versus product. Right. And uh, just to clarify, you know, it's an interesting model because first, a lot of visual artists have a hard time thinking of the physical output of their their art, their work as an artist as product. And of course, we champion that at the Clark Ewing's Fund in our educational program. We we urge people to think, yes, it's not a product the way a can of Campbell's soup is a product, but it is nonetheless a product. And thinking of it that way allows you to do what you just did, which is to compare that to a service like consulting, which is really where, you know, in service-based selling, this is really where clients get swayed is when you're coming to them to solve a problem that they have, Correct. not just saying, here's my art. Do you like it? Will you buy it and use it? So you're talking about service in that sense. Am I right? That's absolutely correct. I, I, the majority of the first part of the client process is coaching, finding out exactly about the, the organization's needs and um, previous examples of them attempting that. And then eventually you get to the fun part, which is the making. But the service, the coaching ends up being sometimes 50% of the entire project. That's really interesting. You know, you and I have a, a mutual colleague who is an artist who makes phenomenal art. I, I love his stuff, but he's really, um, I won't say his name. Actually, I will say his name. <laughs> his name is Brad Reyes uh, because uh, he's been on this show. So, uh, and, and Brad is looking at ways to reach out to corporate clients and organizations on the basis of a service, not just on the basis of my art would would look nice in your foyer, you know. And so I really like this way that you're approaching it. And it has a lot in common with my next question, the thing I want to ask you about, which is the concept of a project. You know, people hear this word art project, and it means a lot of different things uh, to a lot of people. So if you ask somebody, tell me about your latest project, they might say, I'm doing a series of 12 paintings. Sure. And it's like, well, who do you have lined up to buy those things? And that it's, it's not necessarily the same meaning of a project as we're talking about, where a project is a thing that you have a contract to do, and it's being paid for. And the art is being produced uh, for that purpose. Right. So I also, you, Brad may have mentioned this, but I also own a company called Free Agent Source Inc. In which, um, and, and one of our company mottos or stories that we tell the world is, look, all work is essentially project-based now. Sure. Uh, and so uh, I know you come from this world. And my question is, what typifies a project like this as a project so that so that an independent artist who's never even thought this way or who has uh, simply focused on making the product itself and then trying to find buyers for it so they can understand how a project-based art approach differs. Can you kind of shed some light on that? Yeah. In fact, this is one of the hurdles that I had to get through. I come from a fine art background. 
And so I was the guy that was making 10 paintings at a time and trying to find buyers and gallerists. And I think what switched for me was I began actually considering my audience at some point and not just what I wanted to make. And I still make exactly what I want to make. It's still always my art. It's always my creative expression. But at some point, you know, it, it focused on the client need. So that, that's one component of it. The other considerations that, I, that go into these projects that don't probably go into uh, creating studio art is division of labor, systems of logic, some level of incorporation, insurances, working to budget. You know, I don't, I don't remember when I was a painter ever working to budget, you know, there's really no such thing as that. Dealing with contractors and also working with consultants, people who had advice for me. And I think all of those seven key considerations go into the concept of just collaboration. When I create a project with a client, it's a collaborative process. They have to be brought into that process. Otherwise, they don't feel that they're part of it and they don't embrace it. And I think that's kind of different than making studio art. Um, and it, it, it's actually one of the things I like the most about creative placemaking is that you have a lot of different opinions and you have to listen to them and kind of adjust and without watering down the artwork or the expression, which is kind of a difficult task. And granted, you don't make everyone happy, but in the end, you come up with some sort of some summation of expression. And, um, you know, my team gets to make all that stuff. So it's kind of exciting to see all unfold. And um, it's really exciting to um, have that type of creativity benefit others. I'm really glad to hear you sort of lay this out. And I mentioned in the, the PSA at the top of the show, the Art Business Summit in Dallas. And of course, we just did one in Santa Fe, and we're doing them in various cities around the United States continually. And one of the things that we do is is teach a little thing called project management for artists. And, you know, on, on the face, people might wonder, what's that got to do with making art? Aren't you supposed to just sort of stay in your studio, make art, and then someone else goes out and tries to find a way to sell it once the product is already produced? And if you think of us as, you know, a car manufacturer, you wouldn't make 100,000 cars and then then start your marketing and hope to find a buyer and now go out and move these these things. That stuff was done back in the Sears and Robot catalog days when there weren't very many, much competition and there weren't very many products and people were lucky to get anything. If the peddler came by and he had a shovel, you bought it because you wouldn't see a shovel again for, for the next three weeks. Correct. So, you know, one of the things we focus on in that is uh, two things I would extract from your list. If I had to prioritize and you tell me if, if, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So you tell me if, if this resonates with you. Two things that we, um, we prioritize in teaching artists that we extract from that list of seven is uh, having a project plan. That projects are, you know, nothing if not about planning the entire project soup to nuts, if you will. And you can't see all of it, of course, so you have to plan uh, in the dark on some of it and plan the parts you know. And the other is deliverables. Projects are about delivering things according to a timeline or according to a specification or both. Uh, would you say that we're focused on the right priorities if we're just introducing somebody to this concept of working on art projects? Are we on the right track or, or is there something else you would pull out of that? Absolutely. No, I, that's, that's, that's great. It's, it's boiling those two essentials down. Without those two essentials, you're not going to have a project in the end. 
and you, you know, you, you will spin your wheels quite a bit. And I'm only speaking from making those mistakes in the past. I had attempted a couple projects here and there early in my career, and I kind of understand why they may not have gotten off the ground to the level that now I can get them off the ground. Well, let me ask you a couple more questions about this particular project uh, and public art projects in general, and then uh, we'll switch to uh, the second segment of the show. And I want to start asking you a little bit about publicity, and that uh, ties in with some of that earned media and, and so on that you were talking about. Sure. So I would assume you, you sort of suggested it um, when we were talking about walkable cities and attracting business, that one of the goals of public art for a municipality is branding. But when I think of branding, uh, here's the quandary I wonder if you can shed some light on. So if, if I watch Birmingham create a, a, a series of public art projects or public art projects, and that works, and then Erie, Pennsylvania does it, and let's say St. Paul, Minnesota is next, and they decide um, we've got, we need to do something like this. How do you get branding out of that as a unique city versus just, we have it too. We also have art. Come here because we have something that you're now seeing pop up everywhere. What differentiates? Well, that's a great, you know, it's like asking, like, uh, what's the difference between a McDonald's hamburger and a Wendy's hamburger sometimes? And I do see that a lot in the creative placemaking field. In no way are we claiming that we made this idea up. It is, it is taken from a successful project. Most communities struggle to define themselves. That's the universal, okay? What's going to make the Erie Lightway, the Erie Lightway, and unique to Erie is the way that the, the project is put together, the type of lighting, and also the 27,000 square foot surrounding public art project that will be made by community artists as a symbol of our community expression. And I think once you, we get to that level, it'll be very apparent that, yes, that's Erie, Pennsylvania, when people see this on Instagram or social media. That's interesting. You know, I, I think of, I don't know if it would be the same as a public art project, but you think of Chicago, you think of the big reflective beam. Uh, <laughs> I've walked by that thing. It's blinding. But, you know, there are much more developed ways, one might say, to um, to differentiate yourself in branding. And I know that's that's sort of what you're talking about. I like the fact that you pointed out that most communities struggle to define themselves because that is something that therefore the community looking to do an art project often shares with artists because so many artists are also looking to define themselves. What is my brand story? What differentiates me? We can't all just throw paint at a wall and be Jackson Pollock clones. We have to do something significantly distinct and something that's truly ours and comes from within. And so I think what you're telling me is that um, that there is some process or, or sauce, I don't want to call it secret sauce, but some kind of process by which that discussion happens in a place like Erie, Pennsylvania, is not just picking interesting art, but is, is structuring the project and choosing art on the base, in conjunction with hieroglyphics, on the basis of what will define it as a city or what extends its aspirational definition. Yes. Do I have that right or is there more to it that you can share? No, that's, that's exactly right. I can elaborate that the art will be based on industry, the history of the Erie's industry, the natural built the natural environment of, of Erie, which is on Lake Erie, the the political history, uh, War of eighteen twelve, and then also just the unique community that Erie is. Also, we can add to it because of the railroad overpasses. We have a very unique history with the railroad in this area of the country. 
So those are the things we focus on with the artwork, and those are things we'll be highlighting. And that way that Harrisburg could possibly have the same type of project if Harrisburg ends up lighting their bridges. Well, that's interesting because I immediately think of, you know, what if you were so sort of, and, and I, I know this is part of what hieroglyphics would do. You take this show on the road and, and do something similar. I don't mean the artist similar, but I mean do a similar type of project for, say, Pittsburgh or Allentown, both in Pennsylvania, um, but with very different historical trajectories and, and different things that have typified those cities, whether it's uh, steel mills for Allentown or, you know, Pittsburgh has its own sort of but very different industrial background, you would adapt to those environments. Correct. And one of the return on investments for the Erie Lightway is it's a, a highly franchisable idea. And every Rust Belt city that has railroad overpasses cutting through their downtown has this problem to solve. And um, I'd like to build the model here in Erie and bring it elsewhere. Well, that's exciting. I, I like your analogy of Wendy's versus a McDonald's. Of course, I have a saying, which is any hamburger in, in a blizzard. I grew up sure. in Minnesota. And when, you, when you're trapped in your car for two days, you're just like, I don't care. Is it a Hardee's? <laughs> I'll take it. But, you know, preferably neither one. You know, I, I'd really like a, a real patty. Uh, so I'm going to ask you one more question about this project. So you talked about merchandising to accompany the project and sort of the natural question that I think of if I'm an, a working artist listening to this is, does the artist decide on the merchandising and do the artists benefit from the merchandising in some way? Do they get you know royalties or a share or is there other benefits to the, the actual artists in the merchandising process that extends beyond the art, the initial art of the art project itself. Absolutely. The artist, in my case, my company, definitely receives a percentage for all the merchandise that's being sold. And the way I work that out is that, you know, I offer free fulfillment and then we, you know, we take care of all the orders. It's one-stop shopping. It's, it's full turnkey solution. And for that reward, it makes up hustle a little bit too. We get a percentage. And I think that's the fairest way to do it. Everyone wins. It doesn't come out of the pockets of our clients at that point. Merchandise pays for the service. You know, I, I, I find what you said fascinating, just as a parenthetical question, that you said, well, the artist is my company. So Hieroglyphics bills itself as sort of a, a publicity firm that, does, that creates public art. And right. so you're simultaneously, you've created a company entity and an approach around the art that you want to do, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but also have found that one way to differentiate yourself as an artist and to offer sort of art as a service versus just art as a project is to combine it with this capacity to do publicity and this need uh, that you've identified in the marketplace, a clear problem that you solve. Do I have that right? And yeah. if I have it right, do you find that to be an unusual approach or are you seeing that increasing or what? It's a very unusual approach. It comes from my years of working in advertising while I was moonlighting as a painter. And I, I have to tell you, I hated working in advertising, but I learned a lot. And I also learned that I had kind of a, a multifaceted skill set that if I put it together, would create something that I've created with hieroglyphics. You know, usually marketing and publicity don't go well with art or the art crowd. But going back to my example, the Sistine Chapel ceiling, you know, Pope Pius II commissioned that piece of art, not for art's sake, but to basically portray Renaissance Rome 
on the level of ancient Rome. And so it was a publicity stunt in a sense. Now, we always look at the artwork aspect of it, but I also have learned how to look at the return on investment aspect of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And I don't know what Michelangelo got paid, but he certainly didn't get paid enough in terms of return on investment because that ceiling is pretty much the quintessential piece of art in the Renaissance, and it is a great media piece for the Vatican. So I, I think in many different directions, because I, I'm aware of how much buzz art really can create. And um, I don't think traditional uh, marketing works as well as people think it does. I don't think billboards get seen the way that people can see that they're being seen. I still think that human ingenuity and originality and creativity is, is the most visible thing in our built environment. You know, I love that example of uh, the ceiling. I, I've used it before in this show with Michelangelo. And right. and it, it's funny because he didn't really want to do that. He wanted to do sculpture, but but it was an irresistible sort of project for him. So, so it's a fascinating uh, point of history. And of course, the Pope that put him on it had those aspirations, as you said. I, I want to switch gears now going into segment two of the show and, and uh, talk with you a little bit about publicity and the strength of publicity. So let's start with this. In your article, um, How Artists Can Gain Publicity, you use Albrecht Durer. Uh, Durer. I always say that name wrong. <laughs> you use Albrecht Durer. Um, now, he made his name on woodcuts and, and as a printmaker and so forth um, and as a theorist of the German Renaissance. And Correct. you use him as an example of an artist with a knack for publicity. We don't often think of publicity being a thing that far back. But as you mentioned with Michelangelo, of course it is. Sure. It was. The Pope himself was engaged in an act of publicity with that particular public art project. So, and you talk about specifically how his woodblock prints contributed to his notoriety. Can you walk us through the Durer example and, and tell us what you glean from that? Sure. The first thing I'll say is whenever you have commerce, you have the need for publicity. So that goes back as far back as you can think in terms of civilization. Now, with the case of Albert Durer, he lived in a time much like our own, where he lived through the invention of the printing press, where we're living through now the invention of the internet and World Wide Web and globalization. And he harnessed that technology back then to make inexpensive prints of his subjects to be distributed all throughout Northern Europe. And his fame spread very quickly. I think in his early 20s, he was already very well known. So for pennies, you could own some of Albrecht Durer's art. Now, he did make some very high-priced commissions, but you know those take a long time and they're very expensive. The prints drove the high-priced commissions and the awareness of his work. Now, the one thing that's not in the article, and I thought of this only after, Albrecht Durer is the first artist to really have a brand. If you ever notice on one of his prints that AD, that emblem that he drew on everything, that became also an attractive item to people who were collecting. Hey, there's that print again. I have that AD. We have one of those at home. Let's collect another one. So it stimulated some sort of brand awareness with his art. And there, he wasn't the only one doing this. There's a, a, another artist named Martin Schoenberger from the same period. And his work didn't sell as well. And I, it's just as comparable. I mean, just as masterful. I've always thought that maybe it's just because Martin didn't have a brand that people could associate the next purchase with. 
Now, that sounds very 21st century mindset, and I'm sure it didn't go down exactly like that. But in theory, that's the story of Albert Durer. You know, it's funny. Uh, this is kind of a cheesy example, but I, I was searching for uh, a milk frother on uh, Amazon the other day to because mine is wearing out and I, I want my cappuccino, darn it. And the one I wanted wasn't there, and it's a name brand. It's an espresso they don't make anymore. So I was looking at the, the alternatives, and they were all more or less made in China and made by companies we don't know. They're just sort of in faceless factories. And the differences were that one of them might be branded, you know, just XYCIM or um, might be something like International Imports Inc. Or, you know, it was something that you either didn't want on the uh, on the frother <laughs> or they didn't bother to even put it on it. But then you'd have one that just sort of invented a brand. It's the exact same thing, but they invented a brand and tried to create an attitude around it. And so they would call mm -hmm. themselves, you know, fresh living or something like that. And you would get a fresh living frother. Turns out to be an identical frother made at the exact same factory, um, just sold by a different distributor who's doing the work to put a brand. And that one has the higher reviews, goes for the higher price and sells more. So just mm -hmm. a, a straight up difference in identical products uh, also yep. sort of illustrates yeah. the point. Yeah, I think people would have a hard time believing that branding really comes from the art world. And I think the example of Albrecht Durer may be one of the first examples of it because publication is the first example of mass production that we have way before the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, and then you fast forward from Durer and you get uh, you get Shakespeare uh, branding plays. This one is a Shakespeare, you know, yep. <laughs> and uh, yep. uh, you can see that in the film Shakespeare in Love. It's it's a Shakespeare um, they're talking about it as a brand, you know, and so, yeah, it became a thing, right? And it was right. the artists who drove the way, um, as so often happens. Well, now you describe publicity for artists as the way, and I'm going to quote you, quote, promote and stimulate interest through the repetition of a message. Um, and so uh, I want to ask a couple of questions about that. Sure. So one is that, um, you know, a lot of people's default sense of how they should brand themselves as an artist is, uh, well, I'll, I'll go to social media, I'll get on Facebook, uh, and I'll get publicity that way, I'll post things to my followers, etc. And I'll continue to show them my work and how my work all is a body of work. It's all, it all f is similar. You know, it, uh, a Durer doesn't necessarily look like a Pollock, right? And mine looks like this. So sure. is that publicity? Or is that just a drop in the bucket of a larger process? And is repetition, in fact, enough? It is a form of publicity, and repetition is not enough. What I found the tipping point in my business was, you know, I've been, I've been an artist for 20 years and professional artist the whole time, too, for better or for worse, is being able to educate people about why what I'm doing is different. So that's the visual public relations aspect of hieroglyphics. That's what's different about me, my creativity, my team, the entity of hieroglyphics is visual public relations. People don't, you know, people understand public relations, but visual public relations, what do you mean by that? And this enables me to have a further conversation with them. So you're kind of singing my song there um, as a, a corporate storyteller and, and a person that helps artists create their brand story. 
Um, when you talk about educating people about the why, I immediately think about that's the brand story. So it's it's more like iteration ra rather than repetition. You you have a central concept or self definition or answer to your why, and then you continually iterate off of that. Right. Uh, but it's not that we're seeing sort of the same thing over and over again. Yeah, it's jazz. That's exactly the definition of jazz, and I think this is why artists are so good at this once they get it because repetition is boring and people forget it at eventually that's the problem with traditional marketing the billboard concept is it gets boring driving by the thing every day but if you can riff off of it break pieces off of it develop different aspects of it you yourself become more excited about it and therefore your audience becomes more excited about it and the demand goes up I, I really love that comparison with jazz in my own art which is literary art I use it a lot and I, I refer to this notion in jazz, you have these things called chops. And after the, the big guys would get off the stage, you know, Bird would step down and the night was winding down and it's it's 2.30 in the morning. The, the younger guys, the younger artists would get up there and they would show their chops. And of course, you're being judged by the biggest names in the industry. So if you don't have chops, if you're just going to get up there and, and uh, mess around, it's going to be noticeable. But it was a chance for your virtuosity. Uh, to come out and for you to sort of earn, you earned your chops, you earned your comeuppance and your well, people's awareness of you and what your brand is and what it what it stood for. And that's how those guys, how Charlie Parker and others uh, did make a name for themselves is it started with them sort of showing their virtuosity and showing their chops. So my question to you is, you know, we people hear that word publicity and they they think, oh, yeah, I did a press release once. It didn't do anything for me. Or I have an artist statement that I have ready to send to anybody that wants it. How does publicity differ from merely doing a press release or merely sort of having an artist statement? What, what, is there a quintessential difference? Yeah. Uh, are they not even on the same planet or what? Yeah. Yeah, I would say the, the press release, those are all the tools of publicity. To me, publicity is really putting your message out there in a very unique way so people pay attention. So, yeah, the, you know, the, the social media, the press release, the little spot on the, on the nightly news, those are all the tools. But how are you able to take those tools and go after a client that you really wanted to have? How do they find out about you and how do you message them? To me, publicity is a very creative act. And I think I remember um, Andy Warhol saying, you know, business is art. Well, you know, publicity is art as well. And he, he understood that. I'm sure he was moving around in networks where he was just publicizing what he did in a very odd and unusual way that people wanted it. And it's based on, to me, it's, there's no method to it. It's based on the receiver, the audience. And so I can give an example if I'm going after a corporation and they do certain type of, you know, service to the community. I'm focusing on what their service is and I'm tailoring my message right to that service so they can understand in their own way what I do. Uh, in other words, it's not just a blanket message. It's, it's a message plus their concerns or their need mixed into it. I like your distinction that you've drawn between sort of publicity and its tools and your emphasis that, you know, I think what you're essentially saying is the tools don't help you if you're just going to be the same person you were with without a clear brand, without a clear why and a clear message that issuing a press release, um, if nobody understands, let alone you understand who you are and what, why you're doing what you're doing, won't have an impact. And I think 
as an example, one of my favorite examples is Elon Musk. You know, we all more or less know who Elon Musk is, even if we just know the name Tesla or we know about SpaceX rockets. And uh, it's funny, you know, uh, being this flamboyant entrepreneur who is not only interested in a lot of things and challenging a lot of core assumptions, like how fast we can get to Mars and whether or not manned space flights uh, make sense and whether you can mass produce an electric car. Uh, here's the person that launched a Tesla on the tip of a SpaceX rocket to make a point yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you there know, you went even farther. Recently, he got in a Twitter war. He, he challenged Warren Buffett, uh, the godfather of investment, over what makes a, a company a good investment. You know, Warren Buffett is saying, well, you got to have this big conventional moat and invest in these companies that are foolproof. And Warren chose his own candy company as an example. And Musk says, I think I'll start a candy company without a moat because I think it's now about having a reason for what you're doing, reaching an audience with that message. And I bet that that form of brand storytelling can trump the viability of a company that isn't doing that anymore, but but just has is resting on its, on its laurels. And that in and of itself is publicity. Yeah, I agree that that's the same way Apple got started in the shadow of IBM. They had a, they had a really great story, compelling story. It was a personal story. And I think that it goes back to my um, my main point focus on your audience, not yourself. So let me ask you, let's, let's talk a little bit about earned media. You've spoken about earned media a lot. And of course, you mentioned it at the start of the show. And uh, I understand there to be sort of three categories, uh, earned media, owned media, and paid media. Can you define, for, for the sake of the audience, for people that haven't heard that term, can you define earned media for us? Sure. Um, earned media is buzz. I mean, that's basically it. Uh, it's free media. And it refers to publicity gained through promotional efforts other than advertising or traditional advertising. Uh, traditional advertising is like paid media. We see it all the time along the highway. There's the billboards, the TV ads, the ads that are in the newspaper. So uh, I'm talking about buzz, basically. People talking about something. There's no better conduit for earned media than people talking, okay? So it's interesting, art always has had this, this ability to do this to people. People are in awe of, say, back to the Sistine Chapel ceiling or Michelangelo. They go back home, they tell all their family members about it, and lo and behold, three family members next year go and see it. And that's sort of the, 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 the type of loop that uh, our media creates when art is put in the public space. Going back to the bean, I, I'm aware of the bean, and I know people who just saw the bean, and we're all talking about the bean this week. Why are we talking about the bean? Because it's it's interesting and it's it's very novel, and you know it's 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 um, it's, it's much more interesting than probably the the pub that my friends went to after the bean. You know, they're not talking about that or the dinner that they had. The reason why I focus on earned media is one of the return on investment is because I realize. That if I was going to get into this business, no one really has a budget for public art. Like no corporations put money aside for things like that. I mean, very few do. Some do, but the, the, the ones I'm working with don't. But they all put money aside for marketing. So when I approach a client, I really have a marketing conversation with them first. We don't talk about art. We talk about marketing. What's your budget look like? How much money do you guys put in traditional advertising? Are you getting what... You want out of traditional advertising i could create buzz for you uh, in your lobby and my team could create a big piece of art and you will have people talking about it 
we can measure part of that. And also, you know, in the end, don't forget about the art. You get a nice refurbished lobby with killer art in it. So there's a lot of lot of interest once I start opening up this door for, for most people that are thinking about getting more buzz for their organization. It's so interesting that you talk about that. So you have earned media, which is the the buzz or the the true pure publicity you get um, that you didn't pay for. You might have done things that cost money that that brought it, helped bring it about, but it's not straight up advertising, which is paid media. And sure. it's not owned media. Owned media would be, you know, I'll, I'll put another photo on my website. Uh, I own that. I'll, I'll blog about myself, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Those are, yeah. are, are certainly significant and, and they can produce some results. But, um, you know, one of the things I see a lot of artists do is they're sort of grasping around for how can I get publicity and the traditional answers to that in the absence of a gallery saying, just be quiet and go back to your studio. Let me do everything for you. Um, are, well, I'll, I will do what I've seen, which is I'll put my art in Facebook and I'll put some in Van Gogh and on Etsy and I'll try to get a Saatchi store and I'll put it in more places. And you're not saying that the answer is more venues and you're also not saying the art is enough because it kind of begs the question of, well, if all you're really doing is showing people a series of, of pictures, it assumes that you don't need the why, you don't right. need the brand story, you don't, the art is enough by itself. Right. You're sort of saying that earned media requires a little bit more of that Elon Musk ingredient. Yeah. So yeah. what I want to ask you is, you know, I think a lot of artists would argue that earned media is the toughest kind to get because I can buy the other stuff and I own the other stuff uh, if it's own media. So earned media is the holy grail. Well, you can't pay for it. You can't control it. And so for artists, working artists who are working with smaller budgets, what, how can they begin to get their feet wet and get their foot in the door with, with earned media, with getting buzz, short of the obvious of, you know, I'll just uh, post more out there or send out a press release? Well, again, going back to the concept, focus on your audience, not yourself, which is a hard thing to do if you're an artist. I've always struggled with that. In fact, even in this conversation, I'm, re I'm referring to my art, but really it's a business operation. I'm creating these projects with other creative people that I work with. And so, but it's my creative vision. So I, I own it 100%. So that's not uncommon. Um, so let's, let's use an example of like, say, a still life painter. Uh, it's one thing to put your still life on the internet and advertise it for sale, but are you painting a certain type of flower arrangement? And is there a botanical garden that you can begin to help market with your artwork? And so, you know, you're kind of opening up some some un, uncommon avenues for art. And of, of course, people who go to botanical gardens love art because they love beauty and they love flowers. And then all of a sudden inside this whole realm of botanical garden enthusiasts, there's there's a market for art that that's being that has never been dealt that has never been tapped by a gallerist because the gallerist isn't thinking about that. The gallerist is only thinking about art lovers. So I think it's basically about, you know, coming up with some uncommon rationales and finding connections with an audience and then really embracing that audience and finding a way to fit in with that audience. That's a perfect, I think, analysis of the ingredients, uncommon rationales and connections with an audience. And 
you know, at the risk of of those sounding too general, I'll I'll use uh, to some people, you know, well, what do you mean? I can come up with an uncommon rationale. Buy my stuff. But, uh, you know, I've mentioned on this show before, uh, Greg Chadwick, who's an artist who uh, paints historic trains and, and sort of his um, brand story or his claim to fame is that he reaches art, people who are, are not traditionally art aficionados who might ignore the world of art because it, it doesn't resonate with them by tying uh, in historic objects uh, that he knows they'll identify with, such as muscle cars from the 60s and 70s, old trains from the 1920s that are rooted in a particular town, like, say, Allentown, Pennsylvania. And then he reaches and creates art aficionados out of those people, as well as does sort of public shows and tours where that artwork is in conjunction with say a model train organization or or uh, a railroad association or a local community with whom that particular theme is tied. Yeah. So it sounds like you're talking about that public art projects, art projects in general, the idea of not going it alone, but actually finding idea or theme collaborators for your art, uh, that those things, public art projects and art projects in general, are natural bedfellows with publicity, that they facilitate quite easily um, arriving yeah. at some sort of uncommon rationale, uncommon meaning that uh, not everybody's doing it, and connections with the audience that are intrinsic, that have legs behind them and, and money behind them. Yep, exactly. That's it. Well, I, I think that's uh, useful instruction. I want to ask you just a couple of fun questions as we wind down the show. Now, uh, here's a side question for you. So we we mentioned Brad Reyes earlier, and, and that's an artist who uh, whose work I'm interested in. He does um, some aeronautical art that's quite fascinating called Views from the Isle Seat. And he recently did a business accelerator workshop for our fellows in uh, Clark Ewing's Fund's business accelerator program on... CRMs, uh, customer relationship managers, a tool for tracking your contacts, your leads, your partners in a project, people that you might approach for a public art project. You know, it's sort of a way of systematizing one part of uh, that planning and tracking for a project. And you had mentioned to him that you and he had talked early on about uh, CRMs and so on. So I'm curious your take on it, just as a follow-up to that. What, why is a CRM an important thing for an artist to consider. And don't you think a lot of artists probably not only have not heard of one, but are like, that doesn't feel like it's something for artists. That's for business people. What would you say about that? Well, I would say, first of all, artists are natural entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs are creative individuals who produce something despite who controls the resources. That's my definition of an entrepreneur. So artists have always been for-profit entities and the ones that are very good at it back to Andy Warhol, really do excel. Back to CRMs, client relation management systems. For me, I went to an incubator program when I first started my company and I really learned a lot. I got a lot of my business chops and they taught me just about sales process and sales funnels. And uh, being the son of an entrepreneur and a salesman, I kind of remember my father doing something like this on, on index cards. And I remember seeing the system that he had and he would carry one conversation through four stages of the sales process. And so a CRM is just a digital way to do that. I like the CRM just from a personal basis. I always feel like I have something going on and I can, I can easily track at the beginning of my, of the funnel process, possibly what kind of outcomes will, will happen in my business financially. And I like that type of, uh, 
uh, goal setting. I like to fantasize about you know, dropping in these numbers and saying, oh, at the end of this whole process, if I do close this sale, it'll mean X amount of dollars into my business, which means I can continue to create. I don't know any, any creative person that wouldn't like to see something like that to kind of give them a little bit more of a, of a sense of security on their whole creative process, which is not a short process. It's a very long, long process. Um, sometimes um, I have um, projects that I'm working on selling for over a year, and I need to really keep track of what I'm telling people because you forget and you say the same thing sometimes over and over and over again. So I track things pretty religiously uh, at the end of every um, day that I have set aside for sales. I'm, I'm pretty much in my CRM. And then uh, during the week, I can access it on my phone. It's kind of keep track of where I'm at and what I should expect for the next month in terms of earnings, what type of um, things I can do, like extra things, like what kind of extra marketing things can I do with the revenue? And um, it just makes everything slide through the year a little bit easier. I like that aspect of motivation. You, you know, I, um, when I saw that workshop, uh, one of my comments was, you know, see most of the dollars that we should be earning uh, as professionals and artists are tied up in things we haven't completed yeah. the conversation on or followed up with. They're not dollars in our bank account. They're dollars yeah. sitting there earmarked for projects we could be uh, pursuing uh, more diligently. And a CRM helps you kind of see where that is. And um, the other thing is that, you know, some some artists will say, well, I don't have time to uh, mess with the business side or, or use a CRM or focus on sales, et cetera. And I look at what Hieroglyphics is doing and I think we well, don't have time not to because in the end, uh, wouldn't you rather be in the situation of the sales that you've pursued and achieved have bought you the time to now do the work that you really want to do for the money that you really ought to be paid? And that's sort of the purpose of the CRM. Yeah. So I'm sort of, if you'll tolerate that summary uh, of what you said, I, I think um, artists ought to really think about this. And that information about CRMs, you can find that stuff in the Clark Healings Fund uh, digital learning portal um, if you're interested in more information. Let me ask you a couple more questions about uh, your project and what's on the horizon for you, and then we'll wind up. Wh when can we see the Erie Lightway? Well, the Erie Lightway, as I mentioned, is going to be phased through four consecutive sections. Okay, so we're in the beginning of the first section, which has to do with fundraising for the first bridge. It is a $4.6 million project in total, if it gets all built and all funded, and it's going to span the course of three and a half years. So it's going to be a little while. Yeah, it's going to be a little while. We plan on really breaking ground next spring. So as early as February, we could start seeing some action on the first bridge. Oh, that's nice. So it'll be an, uh, a project with, with various iterations. It won't be sort of all at once we're done on, on the last day. That's, that's good. Well, you know what? If, um, because of the weather and the conditions of the, these bridges, it's just not feasible. It's a ton of work. Um, but we could probably speed up the timeline if funding goes as well as it's going now. But you know, there's always these little hiccups that happen, and there's different funding cycles and uh, different priorities. But the mayor has made this uh, a priority for the community. So we're hoping with his support and some state-level uh, grants and some uh, philanthropy that seems to exist in this community for this project that it's going to go um, at the latest three and a half years. Well, the Clark Healings Fund certainly wishes you every success with this project, Todd. Uh, what other public commissions are on the horizon? Well, I'm working on a, a plan 
for downtown Erie. There's a lot of development going on in this community, so it's a great place to be with my business right now. It is a mural plan for 10 murals that are going to be created and installed within 10 months. So back to the planning uh, comment that you made earlier in in the podcast, um, I'm now uh, working out all the planning and all the designing for this project. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Todd's work, visit HireGlyphics.com. That's HireGlyphics, G-L-Y-P-H-I-C-S dot com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit ClarkHewlingsFund.org. To sponsor our learning programs with an impactful gift of any size, visit clarkhealingsfund.org slash donate. We'd certainly appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Todd. It's been really great having you. Thanks for having me.